one of the really helpful ways to think about this is sort of the bathtub problem. So if your bathtub is overflowing um, and it's going onto your floor and first sensible thing that you're gonna do is turn off the faucet, right? That's, that's stopping the emissions that we're already generating today from fossil energy sources and from our agriculture and forestry and land use changes. But then the second thing that you're gonna do is you're probably gonna open the drain, right? You're gonna empty some of that water. And I think that's the work that Carbon 180 is trying to do. We're trying to remove the emissions that are already in the atmosphere. I think, you know, we can see now that the climate that we have is currently unlivable for a large number of people on our planet. And particularly here in the United States, we've contributed about a quarter of that stock to the atmospheric increase in global CO2 concentrations. Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. Believe it or not, we have the technology today to quite literally pull the carbon out of the atmosphere and safely store it. Given this, one might ask, well, why are we not just pulling enough out to slow down global warming and meet our emissions goals? Well, the technology is there to do it, but not do it yet at scale, nor is it very cost efficient. And we're also just starting to build and open up economic markets for supporting it, drafting policy, as well as improving those safe storage capabilities. So while this is by no means science fiction, it's not just a quick and easy solution. It absolutely will be a bigger and bigger part of our efforts going forward to slow down global warming and decarbonize our atmosphere. How big of a part remains to be seen. And no matter how good we get at this, we also must drastically lower those emissions in the first place. These two things are very much not mutually exclusive. Today at Animalia, we're going to break this all down for you. Joining us today is Rory Jacobson from Carbon180.org. Carbon 180 is a fascinating and awesome NGO focused on, you guessed it, the carbon economy. They envision a world where we can reach true net zero and even negative carbon emissions while fostering economic growth and prosperity by moving energy to renewable sources and supporting businesses such as regenerative agriculture, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, commonly known as BECS, and direct air capture, which can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into valuable goods. The key with carbon removal is scale. Today, that scale is still not quite there. However, a lot of funding and innovation is going into this space, providing hope that we can get there. We're gonna give you the full lowdown on the state of that technology and what lies ahead. Coming up right after the break. Did you know that rats can detect landmines and tuberculosis? Well, they can. And thanks to the team at Apopo, they're out there doing this valuable work. It's so valuable and so interesting, we decided to make an online event out of it. Join us on October 16th at noon Eastern for a special retirement celebration for their most accomplished rat, Magawa. This event will change your perception of rats forever. Tickets start at just a $5 donation and all proceeds go to Apopo. Link is in the podcast notes. Hope to see you there. Now, back to carbon removal. Rory Jacobson is the Deputy Director of Policy at Carbon 180. They're a really cool bunch we encourage everyone to check out and follow, and we'll link to in the episode notes. Before talking carbon removal, let's meet Rory. 
thank you so much for having me on, James. I, I really appreciate it. So yeah, my background is actually more or less in soil science. I and mean, I've now more of transferred to the policy space. So my background is really about soil science and particularly how soils can help us to mitigate climate change. And also thinking about a lot of the co-benefits, human health and environmental that come along with that. But right now I'm actually one of the deputy directors of policy at Carbon 180. We are a DC-based think tank and one of the only groups exclusively working on carbon dioxide removal, just sort of the process of pulling the emissions that are already in the atmosphere and storing them either in the earth's surface, uh, in soils and biomass, or below in geologic formations. Well, we actually did a we did an episode, I'd say about a month ago, about the importance of composting and the and the the sort of the beauty of it, and touched a lot on soil science. You know, with that with that as well, it's super super important. Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing my undergrad at Berkeley, Wendy Silver, one of the most important academics studying sort of how compost can benefit rangelands and sort of pump the microbiome to, to increase sequestration was doing some really phenomenal work out there in the Marin area. So when it comes to carbon, which is what we're talking about today, I thought it'd be good to just, you know, tee up, you know, the, the carbon problem or just, you know, how much carbon is in the atmosphere, how much that's accelerated in the last 50 years, 100 years, you know, what we're pacing right now, and just to sort of set the stage for folks that don't know maybe some of the numbers about what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I like to think about this is we have a stock pro or problem, which is the amount of carbon dioxide that's already up in the atmosphere, the greenhouse gases that are already driving climate change. Right now, we've already baked in about one degree Celsius of warming from the pre-industrial point. So we've got about one and a half trillion tons or sorry, one and a half trillion tons of CO2 already up in the atmosphere. That's already driving climate change and increasing feedbacks here on earth that, that further increase warming. Things like the forest fires that we're seeing in California and Australia that are only making the problem worse. So first problem is we already have a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's the work that I deal with. The other problem is that we're still emitting a lot of carbon dioxide. On an annual basis, we as a global community emit about 42 billion tons of CO2. Most of that is from the fossil energy combustion. So driving your car, operating large industrial facilities, things like that. And so really the problem there is sort of stopping the emissions that we're already doing. Obviously, we can't flick a switch overnight and transition our, our energy system, but that's what a lot of really smart, wonderful folks are already doing, right? They're driving policies to increase our deployment of renewable energy to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. I think one of the really helpful ways to think about this is sort of the bathtub problem. So if your bathtub is overflowing and it's going onto your floor and first sensible thing that you're gonna do is turn off the faucet, right? That's, that's stopping the emissions that we're already generating today from fossil energy sources and from our agriculture and forestry and land use changes. But then the second thing that you're gonna do is you're probably gonna open the drain, right? You're gonna empty some of that water. And I think that's the work that Carbon 180 is trying to do. We're trying to remove the emissions that are already in the atmosphere. I think, you know, we can see now that the climate that we have is currently unlivable for a large number of people on our planet. And particularly here in the United States, we've contributed about a quarter of that stock to the atmospheric increase in global CO2 concentrations. And so really the problem that we're trying to solve is how to draw that CO2 back down to the earth in safe and durable. One of the tricky things I've noticed about this topic is... You know, it's recognizing that they're both so important. As you said, we have to lower the emissions. We have, like, we have to. And we also have to find ways to remove carbon out of the atmosphere. But what I see, let's say in the energy sector, take a company like Exxon, right? Mm -hmm. And I see so much emphasis on carbon sequestering, carbon removal, 
and mm-hmm. and then as almost as a way like hey we don't need to get off fossil fuels as fast as as you think we do because we can actually take this carbon out and it's it's tough because the average person that you know doesn't understand the science and doesn't understand uh the details of these things it's hard to evaluate oh is exxon right do we not need to get off fossil fuels like but we really need both yeah yeah it i mean the messaging sounds great i, I get those youtube ads too but really i think Part of what you're describing here is what's called the moral hazard, right? The idea that we think that we have sort of this universal solution that we can deploy to just, you know, continue to collect the emissions that we're putting up in the atmosphere. And that is absolutely not what I or what Carbon 180 would advocate for. I think it is incredibly important to transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And again, part of the problem is recognizing that, first of all, the current infrastructure that we have, our, you know, our entire economy is based around fossil fuels and hydrocarbons. And so transitioning away from that and the existing infrastructure we have to renewable energy is the first is the first difficulty. But then also making sure that carbon removal is around when it's time to flick that switch and really start cleaning up cleaning up our historic mass, right? Having already contributed 1.5 trillion tons into the atmosphere, it's a mess that I think, especially the global north, has a moral obligation to clean up. Uh, but I agree, the messaging issue is really tough. And I think it's a reason that a lot of climate justice and environmental justice organizations might be opposed to some carbon sequestration or carbon removal technologies. The underlying technology of carbon capture and carbon removal, which is an important distinction we're going to make in just a minute, has been around for a while. Big promises in this area have been around, well, since the early 90s, when the coal industry declared they could safely capture and store their emissions right at the site where it was being burned. Newsflash, that didn't exactly happen as promised. All the way up to Exxon today, focusing the majority of their climate solution and communications around their future carbon removal technology instead of moving faster off of fossil fuels. That's where the rub has been. The potential of carbon capture and removal is awesome. It always has been. However, in the last 30 years, that potential has sometimes been used as a reason for some not to focus on actually lowering emissions. Well, now that we're in a full-blown climate crisis that is only getting worse, there's no more debate over lowering emissions versus carbon removal. We need both. And it's time for the carbon removal side of things to start to live up to that potential. It's important, however, to understand it will still take time to get there which means we have to keep lowering emissions drastically. This is part of the problem with the net zero obsession in the corporate world right now. There is risk that it leans too heavily towards offsetting emissions via supporting capture and removal initiatives without working to lower the emissions on how we actually make and source things. And I think one of the big problems that I see is the net zero framing, right? This idea that if we have some negative emissions, right, carbon removal pulling it out of the air, and then we have positive emissions, but our negative emissions are greater than the contributions that we're putting in the atmosphere, then we still are going to have an okay climate. And I think that's really misleading because a lot of the technologies that we're relying on are not yet proven, or at least proven at scale. And again, some of our natural opportunities like forests, like soils, agroecology, and blue carbon management are not necessarily durable for long periods of time. That carbon is always cycling. And so one really smart policy maneuver that I've seen come up, especially from the EU, is the idea of setting different targets, right? You have one target for emissions reductions, how much you're going to reduce your contribution by. Then you have an entirely separate target for carbon removal, how much you're going to pull out of the atmosphere. I want to briefly pause and recognize what Europe is doing here that Rory mentions. They're setting unique targets for emission reduction and carbon removal. 
treating them as separate initiatives with their own goals based on where the technology is at. This is what we need globally, specific targets for emissions reductions and specific targets for carbon removal. And to the same point, you know, that you made about Exxon or Chevron or any other fossil fuel company pushing carbon removal as an excuse to continue to emit, there's that feeling of sort of guilt alleviation, right? That if you, you know, check that box on your flight, when you, you know, buy your plane ticket for three or $4 that you've now neutralized the emissions and that you can travel guilt-free, I think is a bit misleading, right? Like have those emissions actually been sequestered? How long are they going to be sequestered for? And how do we ensure ultimately that they're actually monitored and verified by a third party? And I just don't think offset markets are there yet. I come to this conversation as a policy wonk. And one thing that I'd love to see is, you know, financial regulators start to take a stake in some of the climate claims that are being made by large corporations. I think that, you know, shareholders should be overwhelmingly concerned about the legitimacy of the climate claims that are being made by their or by the companies that they're investing in right and so i actually think that there's an important role for the sec um, and other regulators to play in actually verifying and validating the claims that are made particularly around offsets to some degree but also emissions reduction in the products that we're seeing like i think on a daily basis i see you know products that are offered that claim to be net zero or even carbon negative in some contexts that you know you read the fine print and they actually just supported a forestry project somewhere in the global south that probably didn't even pay the folks that were implementing that project a reasonable compensation rate. Absolutely. Or they what's also happening in that in those parts of the world, they're they're you know kind of identifying an area to plant trees for this program and then counterbalancing that with more deforestation next door. Right. And like leakage um, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, one thing, one of my colleagues, Dr. Barbara, is phenomenally thoughtful in this issue. And there really is not a good basis in the literature to understand the leakage problem, right? Like at a macroeconomic level, we don't have a good understanding of a given forest preservation project in X region will yield X percentage of leakage somewhere else. There is no clear understanding of that issue. And it, it's a really tough issue to research, but it's a massive problem to ensure the legitimacy of forest offsets, particularly. Now, let's get into carbon capture versus carbon removal. It's a really important distinction to make because these two things also get jammed up together a bit too often. You can think of carbon capture sort of like grabbing that carbon as it's being emitted and carbon removal of taking out that carbon that has already reached its resting place in the atmosphere. Better yet, let's let Rory explain it, and then we'll get into discussing carbon capture first before moving into removal. This is a really, really important distinction to make. So carbon capture or carbon capture and storage, often called CCS, is an emissions reduction or emission avoidance technology, right? So this is, you can think at the end of the smokestack at an industrial facility or a power generation facility, there's basically a scrubber um, or a filter that is going to remove the carbon dioxide from the emissions, or at least a large part of it. I think typically the capture rate is around 90%. So this is a technology that, again, helps us turn off the faucet, reduce the amount of emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere. Now, carbon removal, and especially the engineered carbon removal technologies, like direct air capture, for example, are actually technologies that allow us to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. This is basically the air purifier of our entire atmosphere, which is to say that it's basically a filter with a fan that uses electricity and a heat source to scrub carbon dioxide that is already in our atmosphere. And so the really important distinction there is that direct air capture and carbon removal 
let us clean up our past mess, right? It allows us to take back those legacy emissions that we've already contributed to climate change and actually ultimately to reduce the overall amount of warming that we have, which is incredibly important. Now, equally important potentially is the role of CCS in curbing emissions from things like natural gas generation or cement and steel production, things that right now we're having a difficult time decarbonizing. So, I mean, the simple answer is that carbon capture and storage helps us reduce the amount of emissions that we're putting out, whereas carbon removal or direct air capture, similar technologies, let us actually remove the carbon dioxide that we've already emitted. It seems like from my reading and understanding, Carbon capture is this sort of promise that has been put out <clears throat> dating all the way back to the early 90s and the Earth Summit in Rio without really ever delivering. Like, you know, yeah. back then it was, oh, our coal plants, we're going to be able to capture those emissions to come out of the coal plants and soar them right in. And uh, that didn't happen. And then it was the, <clears throat> you know, the, a lot of the kind of biomass carbon capture mm -hmm. system. And that was, you know, kind of lauded in, you know, mid, late 90s as the solution. And it just seems like, carbon capture, again, this is from my perspective, I could be wrong, so I want you to correct me, <clears throat> has been kind of this mechanism, again, to avoid some of the actual like conversion to renewables, getting off fossil fuels, mm -hmm. this promise that has always been over-promised and under-delivered. Under is, that, is that fair? Is that, is that not accurate? I think it depends on the actor that you're talking about, right? So the scientists that originally were thinking about how to do carbon capture and storage, especially from fossil energy generation, were thinking of this as an emissions reduction technology that would scale globally. And probably at the time, I mean, I, had, I think we're actually this year, we're celebrating 50 years of CCS from its first commercial deployment. I think that the folks that originally were designing these technologies were well-intentioned, but they probably also intended for us to continue to use fossil fuels by implementing CCS on these systems. And so there's obviously some flaws with that thinking. But I also think that, you know, for example, there are long histories of fossil fuel companies committing to do carbon capture and storage projects and then later backing out. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again. There are multiple facilities in the United States, for example, the Petronova facility, which recently stopped using its CCS system altogether. The Kemper facility in Louisiana also stopped, or yeah, Louisiana or Mississippi. One of the two also stopped altogether operating at CCS facility. And so what we've learned is that, first of all, CCS is a massive infrastructural investment and government cost share here has been substantial, like hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer funds allocated to these natural gas and coal systems that ultimately is no longer even in operation, despite the fact that the taxpayer has fundamentally really paid for these systems. So I don't necessarily know that the aim was originally to... Uh, kick the can down the road, I guess I might say, on, on actually transitioning to clean energy, but it definitely has been repurposed in that way, right? CCS has bought a social license in many contexts for fossil fuel companies to continue to operate. When it comes to carbon capture, this also includes carbon sequestration. And we have some pretty impressive technology to lean on out there. It's called nature. The two biggest natural carbon sinks are our oceans and our soil. They do a damn good job, but man, have we been doing our best to get in the way? This is part of the vicious cycle of greenhouse gas emissions. The more we emit and the more we warm this planet, the harder it is for nature to do its carbon capture work. Not to mention adding in toxins, plastic pollution, tillage, and all the things we do to fight the carbon productivity of our oceans and our soil. These two great levers are also deeply connected to social justice. For example, 
as ocean warming, acidification, and toxic runoffs damage our mangrove forests, well, the people who depend on them for food security suffer as well. When it comes to protecting our soil and regenerative agriculture, well, there's a lot we can learn by supporting indigenous practices and culture. As we always try to remind folks here at Animalia, climate and social justice are incredibly intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll start with soils because that's where I'm comfortable. Yeah, I, I think soils are a phenomenal tool that can be an important part of what could ultimately be a pathway to mitigating climate change. I think one important aspect of soil carbon sequestration that a lot of people don't think about is the fact that the reason that soils can now be a good sink for carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere is, is because we have what Dr. Jonathan Sanderman calls our, our soil carbon debt, right? So through, you know, 11,000 years of human agriculture, we have depleted our topsoil, we've depleted the carbon content of our soils across the globe. And a recent paper has found that we've emitted about 100 billion tons of carbon, so not CO2, but carbon into the atmosphere from our soils. And accordingly, that's driven warming. Now, through things like regenerative agriculture, which looks like uh, cover crops, so you know, making sure that your field is covered at all times of the year, not tilling your soil at the end of a growing season, making sure that carbon stays in the soil. Really, I mean, the principles here are just keeping your soil as covered with vegetation as possible, keeping roots in the ground as, as deep and as often as possible, and minimizing the disruption of your soil you can significantly increase the amount of carbon that is present in, in the top meter of your soil, which is phenomenally important. And, and it, there's, they've demonstrated at global scale that this could be about 3 billion tons of carbon dioxide sequestration at the global scale if you know, sort of all, agric all agricultural lands take up these practices. So, so there's a significant climate benefit, but I think also there are important co-benefits, you know, both for human health, but also for environmental health, right? They are <clears throat> more resilient to things like drought. They are more resilient in things like floods. They have a better water holding capacity. And so, yes, it's a climate solution, but it's an, also an important aspect of our food system and food security. So I think really, yes, it is a climate solution, but also there are a lot of other good reasons to support soil carbon sequestration, the implementation of these practices now. Taking a step back, the way that we've thought about incentivizing this so far is through an offsetting approach, right? I think that there is a lot that we understand about measuring soil carbon in the academic context, and I don't know that that easily translates to marketplaces, right? You have to have uh, your neighborhood grad student out there in the field taking soil cores, bringing them to a lab, testing them, and confirming the amount of carbon that is has actually been sequestered and is, is sequestered for an extended period of time. So that's that's the first important consideration. I think. The other consideration is how long, you know, can we actually monitor that for? So for things like the California Air Resources Board Forest Protocol, which we're now seeing, you know, a lot of forest offsets burn up in, their durability term can be up to 100 years, right? And so can soils replicate that? We haven't seen a lot of protocols similarly saying or committing to sequestering carbon in soils for hundreds of years. And this is part of, you know, the seasonal basis of agriculture, but that's a big challenge. Thinking on the blue carbon side, I mean, first of all, we have a tremendous amount of work to do to restore our coastal ecosystems, right? And this has a lot to do with the fact that we all want to live by a beach and we all want to have beachfront property. And, and accordingly, there are a lot of seawalls that have been constructed in places like the southeast of the U.S. that would actually be much better situated with mangrove ecosystems and with, yeah, carbon sequestering biomass along our shores. And 
because of aesthetic reasons and because of building code reasons, we've removed those ecosystems. But similarly, it's sort of you know a question of significant carbon sequestration potential with an opportunity for substantial co-benefits. I think you know restoring our mangrove ecosystems is one place where I really see climate adaptation intersecting with carbon dioxide removal in a way that's really promising. And I think one other aspect of all this stuff is a lot of these practices, whether they are you know management and even stewardship of mangrove ecosystems or soils or even kelp forests, there's a tremendous amount of indigenous and cultural knowledge that surrounds those practices and that management that I think is important for a lot of other just moral and social reasons. Do you see a possibility where there, there could be subsidies provided to those converting and practicing regenerative agriculture on the basis of, you know, regenerative agriculture, improved soil health, improved soil is improves a, as a carbon sink. And there's, there's economics there, right. That are valuable and that we, we could be, and should maybe should be kind of subsidizing, subsidizing it around a model like that. Is that, is that, is that feasible? Yeah. So I, I want to clarify my point. I think that what I'm saying is I, I get concerned when a company like, for example, uh, any given fossil fuel company wants to combust fossil fuel and emit a ton of CO2 and they want to message to their consumer that they've paid a farmer to sequester that same ton or ton of CO2 back in their soil. Thus, we're all good on the whole climate problem. The obvious issue here is that you're combusting and emitting geologic carbon, non-biogenic carbon into the atmosphere, and you're trying to sequester it in a biological system, right? That's constantly turning over that CO2. And you just don't get that same durable sequestration. So I think I'm concerned about the offset problem. Now, should we be paying farmers to implement these practices? Absolutely. You know, our U.S. Department of Agriculture has a phenomenal variety of conservation programs that indirectly fund practices that sequester carbon. So we can think about our conservation stewardship program or the environmental quality incentives program. These are programs that have been around, been supporting farmers to implement these practices for a long time. Now, something that I'm also really excited about is there have been murmurs from the Biden administration about implementing what's called uh, a carbon bank concept. This is the idea that they really leverage funds from the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is basically just USDA fundamentally taking a loan on credit and funding farmers to implement practices that sequester soil carbon. Now, this could take or this could, you know, take a number of different, I guess, implementation approaches, like they could do it on a if you implement, you know, no-till agriculture, you get X dollars per acre, or they could attempt to measure that carbon and allocate it towards the NDC or our commitment towards the Paris Agreement Accord. So, so yeah, I think it's a really promising effort as long as we're not using it as an offset. Okay. So that's carbon capture. So how about carbon removal? How much carbon can we realistically just pull out of the air? How much will that cost and where do we put it? As we set up earlier, the underlying tech here has been around for a while. What has not yet been solved is cost and scale, which means today it's still serving a pretty minor role in our march towards zero emissions. Take Climeworks, which just put their largest direct air capture facility online in September in Iceland. This new plant, which they call Orca, will be able to draw 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide each year. Well, the world emits about 42 billion tons per year. So 4,000 is a nice start, but far from meaningful just yet. However, that's only one facility, and we're only at the beginning of making this technology more efficient and scalable. Where are we at today with carbon removal technology in terms of 
you know, how, like, where, how can it scale? Like, where is it at in, in that, in, in that terms and, and how much, how much progress is still needed to go on the, on the scalability, the costs, like where, like, what's the state of the technology in the carbon removal space? Sure. It's a great question. So maybe I'll actually start with, you know, some brief history here. I think, you know, Dr. Julio Friedman at Columbia University always reminds us like, this is not actually a new technology. It's a new application of a technology that we already understand. And so actually the first time that we really saw something similar to a direct air capture system was in the design of submarines, right? We had people breathing CO2 into the atmosphere of the submarine, we needed to find a way to clean that out and make sure that, you know, there was breathable oxygen in there. So this is a technology we have known about for a while. We can remove CO2 from ambient air, but it largely started, I think, as a hypothetical technology for emergency sort of cleansing of our global atmosphere. Dr. Klaus Lackner at ASU really was one of the pioneers to think about this technology and to really start develop, developing some prototypes of what it might look like. And I think Climeworks, the, the technology that you're mentioning, they started up about 12 years ago with an ambition, I think, to clean up 1% of global emissions, which is a massive objective. The reason that, you know, at the most basic level that direct air capture is so difficult or carbon removal through an engineered means is so difficult is really a thermodynamic problem. When we talk about carbon capture and storage from a point source from an emitting fossil fuel facility, for example, you know, we might have CO2 concentrations at 50%, which makes it much easier uh, and less energy intensive to capture that CO2. The concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is 0.04%. And so we really have this additional thermodynamic challenge, first of all, to move a massive amount of air over a filter to continue to cleanse out the CO2, which requires a lot of energy input as well. So part of the cost here, right, is actually designing and building the facility. The capex of these facilities is, is substantial. Just to unpack what Rory said there so you fully understand. When we capture carbon at the point of emission, it has a concentration of 50% of those emissions, making it very efficient to capture. Once it settles into the atmosphere, where carbon removal comes in, well, that concentration is at 0.04%. So removing it via direct air capture is very inefficient, which is why it's been so costly to date. There's also a significant operational cost of all of the energy that's going in to, to capture that CO2, to recycle your capture material over and over again is, is costly. I think when the first estimates of direct air capture came out, they were around $800 to $1,200 per ton, which is overwhelmingly much higher than sort of any given abatement cost with the exception of maybe things like EVs, right? So it turns out it's a lot cheaper to actually just clean up your mess in the first place, right? Shut off the faucet first. But it also turns out that we understand that our climate right now is inhospitable and that, you know, current climate damages likely warrant this emergency deployment. And so the Orca facility that Climeworks just launched, I think only about two weeks ago now, is, is the first facility that is capturing sort of commercial scale levels of CO2 and actually storing them underground, which is a really important feature of that facility. They actually are using geothermal energy to operate the facility in its entirety and injecting into basalt rock there right at the location, which is really cool. It's a, it's a, it's a very unique situation that they have. But I think the thing that we do understand about you know, things like solar and wind is that the more you deploy them commercially and the more modular you can make your technology, the further you can learn by doing. And I think that really direct air capture is going to be an experience of learning by doing in the sense that we know that costs will decline with commercial experience and deployment. Now, what those costs actually end up being is anyone's best guess. There are a lot of recent estimates in the literature that would sort of ballpark that somewhere around $100 per ton might be feasible. 
So if we can get direct air capture to $100 per ton as Rory outlines, well, how does that compare to the economic cost of that same ton of carbon being in the atmosphere? There's no concrete, straightforward answer to that. The Environmental Defense Fund estimates that each ton of carbon costs roughly $50 in damages due to its impact on our planet. And this is estimating costs based on the social and economic damages of warming oceans, storms, droughts, floods, crop loss, and so forth. And yes, $100 is more than $50, but that's not the entire picture here. That $50 per ton estimate on the cost of carbon in the atmosphere is very much an estimate. And as we put more and more into the atmosphere, the damages increase and so do those costs. And that's only going to go up. And the $100 per ton of removing it is a short-term goal, but long-term, that should continue to come down as well. The funding for direct air capture, like in the case of Climeworks, seems to be coming from a few sources. Well, there are two that stood out to me I asked Rory about. The first are big corporations buying this removed carbon in the name of offsets. The other one was a bit more alarming to me, which is oil companies using CO2 to inject it into deep, more challenging wells to essentially thin the oil, increase its flow, and ease of removal. Hydraulic fracking and, and, and oil wells and, and, and aiding in the sort of, maybe not hydraulic fracking, but aiding in the, in the removal of oil, that, car, like that, that, that carbon. And so some oil companies are essentially buying it and, and using it in that way. And then the other way it's being used is, you know, back to the offsets a little bit. Like some companies are essentially buying, you know, these, you know, paying for it to get, you know, carbon credits to offset, again, their practices rather than, you know, lowering and changing their practices directly. Is there any reason to concern about those two sources of funding for carbon removal? Or is it just sort of, this is part of the road to getting where we need to be? And, you know, these are stops along the way, or maybe that these aren't actually two big funding sources, that those are just like maybe things that are being built up in the media, but they're not actually funding carbon removal mm -hmm. or you know, what, like, yeah. No, it's a, it's a fantastic question. So let me start with the first part. I think what you're getting at is what's called enhanced oil recovery and in some yeah, cases enhanced yeah. gas recovery. EOR is a hot topic, I think, right now because there's a question politically of should we continue to, to offer subsidies for, for this process, right? And is this an appropriate roadmap to scale up carbon removal technologies? So I'll start with a couple things on sort of like the life cycle emissions of these technologies and why we probably should still be concerned about it. So, you know, EOR is something that fossil fuel companies has, have been doing since the 1970s. It's a well understood process, but historically fossil fuel companies have used CO2 that is already stored underground in what are called CO2 domes, right? So basically you're taking CO2 already underground, moving it through a pipeline and then injecting it into an oil field to do what's called tertiary recovery, right? Sort of the last effort to get the last little drops of oil out of your well. And this is all about economics to them, right? If the CO2 price in your output in terms of barrels is economical, they'll continue to do that, that process. The question is, is direct air capture potentially a economically viable opportunity to do that while reducing the carbon intensity of oil? And, and the way that this really works is pull CO2 from the atmosphere, force oil out the other side of the well. It's a pretty straightforward idea. We, or the peer review literature has shown that this can be a carbon negative process, right? Even, you know, considering refining emissions, considering fossil fuel combustion emissions and you driving your car, ultimately this could be carbon negative, right? The question is, is whether this is the process that we want for direct air capture to scale. I think that, you know, there are opportunities like the work that Occidental Petroleum is doing in the 
Permian Basin, it's, it's important to have case studies of direct air capture that demonstrate that geologic storage is viable and demonstrate that large-scale commercial facilities are viable. I do not think it should be the responsibility of the taxpayer ultimately to continue to subsidize those initiatives. I do think that it's, it's helpful as a case study, but I don't think it's the way that direct air capture should scale, which leads me to the second part of your question, which is, should we laud corporations that are investing in carbon removal, specifically engineered carbon removal, companies like, like Stripe, like Swiss Re, like Microsoft? Absolutely. I think that it is incredibly ambitious of them to invest in these technologies at an early stage. And ultimately what they're doing is, is they're really buying down the cost of these technologies. We know that if we invest now, that costs will be cheaper for the nth generation plant. And that's really the value that, that these companies are bringing. And I think that now folks are starting to realize they're bringing is by financing these early deployment opportunities, they are facilitating a path to scale for these companies, right? Like Climeworks needs people to buy 10,000 tons over the course of the next decade, like Swiss Re has. And I think one interesting thing that all of these companies have said is, is that they're not willing to invest in EOR projects. They are very much set on making sure that direct air capture deployments are entirely decoupled from hydrocarbon, really anything, right? That that these facilities are not generating downstream sort of scope three emissions, that they really are demonstrating a proof of concept for geologic storage. And I think it's really exciting, actually. I think that the way that Microsoft thinks about this particularly is, is cleaning up their historic footprint, which I firmly believe in, right? They're, they've very clearly quantified the emissions they put up in the atmosphere, and they're on a mission to remove the same amount of tonnage. And I, I think that's really phenomenal. From a quantitative standpoint, how much, how much, how many tons of carbon can direct air capture remove today based on the facilities, facilities that are out there worldwide today? And what is the number you think we need to get to, to, you know, you know, kind of meet the Paris Accord, meet the one and a half degree target? I mean, full, full discrepancy, uh, discretion, like, I increasingly worry that, you know, we're going to get to one and a half regardless. And then this is more about like not getting to two, yeah. but yep. let's keep the one and a half targets, stay hopeful, stay optimistic. Where, where do you think we need to get to on carbon removal as, as that piece of the, in terms of that piece of the puzzle to meet that target? Sure. And I think it's a really good question. So maybe I'll start with some, some brief climate math. So I think that the way that we already think about this, right, is, is what are called overshoot scenarios. The idea that we blow past our carbon budget about, you know, halfway or three quarters of the way through this century, right? We're going to overshoot 1.5, but the way these targets are designed is, is in a 2100 metric, right? So if you're back down to the 1.5 C mark by the end of the race, you're doing okay. And that's really the value of carbon removal in terms of the way that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change thinks about this problem, right? That if we can deploy carbon removal at massive scale at the end of the century, well, we can clean up our mess and we can get back down to a safe target. Currently, globally, I think direct air capture facilities are capturing somewhere around 10,000 tons of CO2 per year. It's not a big number. We're trying to, you know, save the Titanic with a bucket and bail ourselves out. It's not going to work at the scale we're currently at. The idea though, is to get learnings from these early deployments to understand how we do get to scale. I think that the role that direct air capture has to play in future deployment scenarios is very much contingent, first of all, on how quickly we actually do reduce our emissions, right? Like how quickly do we shut off the top? How much more CO2 do we put in the atmosphere over the next, you know, 10, 20, 50 years? really important. And then also 
what role do sort of our land-based solutions play? And, and for that matter, you know, blue carbon or ocean-based solutions. I think that there are a number of considerations around the role that the land sector can play, including how permanent or durable that carbon storage actually is and the climate feedbacks that are already impacting a lot of those ecosystems, right? Anything from wildfires to catastrophic drought, things like that. And so there really is no easy answer to this question. I think, you know, the answer that my colleagues came to when we were writing the carbon dioxide removal primer or cdrprimer.org, check it out. It is a learning resource for folks who are trying to figure out uh, and learn about carbon removal. But the number is somewhere around, you know, one to two gigatons or billion tons of CO2 by 2050. And that seems like a modest number, given that we're, you know, the US or that we're globally emitting 40 billion tons of CO2. But, you know, with sufficient emissions reductions and scale up beyond 2050, I think that starts to look a lot more significant. So where do we store this carbon we are removing? So there are a number of different pathways. And I should mention that, you know, obviously when we think about engineered carbon removal, things like direct air capture, you can put it underground. I'm going to talk about that in a second, or you can turn it into products. And I think, you know, the non-EOR utilization opportunity in the near term, I think is what's really exciting to me, right? Can we make stronger and better concretes by injecting CO2 into these mixtures? There are a number of companies from Carbon Cure to Carbon Built to Blue Planet working on this. That's really exciting to me. That's permanent and durable storage that also sort of accounts for the fact that we're going to continue to build buildings. But for carbon removal to actually really scale in a way that's climatically significant, we have to start doing geologic storage. There are really, I think, three buckets of, of geologic storage that we can think about that are not EOR, right? Like not extractive, not injecting into oil and gas wells. The first of which is saline aquifers, which we have plenty of both onshore, onshore and offshore in the United States. Realistically, the volume that these aquifers could, could facilitate storage of is, is far greater than emissions that we would foresee from a sort of here on to 2100. So, so saline aquifers are sort of like the best near-term opportunity, but we also see that there are other sort of, you know, more creative geologies. So for example, Peridite is a reactive mineral that less so exists in the US, but definitely in Africa that you can also inject to that sort of forms a, a permanent mineral sequestration opportunity. So in saline aquifers, the CO2 is actually still a super critical fluid sort of floating around around a kilometer below us. In the case of peridite and basalt, which is the third category, it actually is forming a permanent, a permanent rock, right? It's actually turning that CO2 into mineral. There is no case of reversal. I think that there is a lot of concern around, first of all, the leakage of CO2 and not leakage in the way we were talking about before, but just literally quite, literally the well actually just leaks and starts spewing CO2. I think that that, you know, according to the peer review literature is incredibly unlikely. And then the second concern is, you know, if we inject the CO2, are there gonna be more earthquakes? And I think the peer review literature also says no to that question. You do hear a lot about something called induced seismicity, which is the increased frequency in really, really small earthquakes that are entirely undetectable to humans, but could be detected by, you know, monitoring devices, things like that. But fortunately, due to experience doing things like EOR for the past 50 years or so, we do know that we can store CO2, you know, geologically safely and for long periods of time. Finally, I asked Rory about different ways we can reduce the cost and continue to advance carbon removal technology. In terms of some of the ways to bring the costs down of carbon removal, both in the public and private sectors, like what are 
What are, I mean, and you talked about a little bit of that and a good example is some of these larger companies funding the work, right? Are there any other systems and things to, to, to call out of like how we can accelerate, you know, the, the technologies and, and lower and, and, and tackle some of these costs to, to advance this work? Yeah. I mean, so I, I'm excited about things like, you know, multiple corporations coming together to provide near-term contracts for long-term offtake. I think, you know, companies that are willing to be honorable to their shareholders and, and really facilitate some transparency around their carbon emissions is crucial at this point, right? Like we've already seen a lot of investors asking for a disclosure of, of climate risk to assets, right? Investment assets. I think the insight or exciting other side of that coin is asking you know, those same companies to disclose their own contributions to climate change and also what they're planning to do about it, right? So don't just make a net zero commitment, make a really thoughtful, very detailed commitment to fund certain initiatives and technologies and projects that are going to deliver long-term durable carbon, you know, sequestration alongside, a, you know, incredibly comprehensive commitment to reducing your footprint. And so I think that one of the biggest challenges is that, yes, Microsoft can buy you know, millions of tons of CO2 and afford to do that. And, you know, Stripe is also in Shopify are doing similar work. This has to occur across, you know, all verticals of the economy, right? It, it can't just be technology companies that are working on this. It, you know, I think oil and gas companies have a tremendous contribution to our legacy emissions and should take a lot of responsibility for cleaning up their historic mess. There's a really important climate justice aspect to that. But really at the end of the day, I think that that policy needs to play a role here, right? So should we offer subsidies to near-term projects, you know, for example, ranging from soil carbon sequestration to direct air capture, you know, with non-extractive geologic storage, so not EOR, instead injecting in things like saline aquifers? Absolutely. I, I think our government has a tremendous role to play in buying down the cost of these technologies to make it more viable for companies to later scale them up. I also think that policy has other roles. Like I think we've more or less acknowledged that a, a carbon tax isn't happening anytime soon, mostly due to unfortunate political reasons. However, I do think that there are important considerations for things like carbon take back obligations, right? So Dr. Miles Allen at University of Oxford is one of the first sort of thinkers on this issue, but should there be an obligation for, you know, companies and fossil fuel producers to take back some of the emissions that they've contributed to climate change. I think absolutely. And I think, you know, policy is going to play a crucial role, especially over the next decade in, in the research and development of these technologies, but also bringing them to commercial scale. And I think, you know, there, there are a lot of exciting things happening in policy, even here in the U S that make me think that that could actually happen. Yeah. Probably a conversation for another time about carbon taxes and why, why they've been so hard to, to implement because uh, in theory, they, they do seem like they would be an effective tool, but I hard to, hard to get, get actualized and get supported mm -hmm. and to maintain too. Cause I can see it's something that could swing back and forth based on, you know, whoever is in, in control, Congress and president. So like, it's one of those, yeah. I mean, that's the hard, hard thing I think with a lot of the policy side of this is because we've entered into a political era that is more divided and that we see, you know, candidates now, Trump started this and Biden's doing the same thing along certain lines of just, you know, kind of trying to kind of, you know, push their agendas through instead of right. running through the process. Like, you know, it's, it's great when it's happening in the, you know, on the climate side and the, you know, I take like the, the shutdown of the XL pipeline, the Keystone XL sure. pipeline. Right. But you can see where it's setting up a precedent where 
if there's, you know, someone in power that is, is not as focused on, on climate, they're going to push their same agenda through and kill. I mean, I think Trump rolled back over 180 environmental policies in his time. And you can see if, if him or one of his, you know, in his camp, you know, resume comes back into power, this notion that we just are, are now like pushing things through as, as in a, in a kind of bulldozing way that could be used for like really good things. But there's a flip side to that too. And I imagine that's one of the stressors on things like carbon removal, carbon sequestering is like, Oh, we might make some advance in policy, but we could lose that in three years and four years time, just to wipe it out completely. How do we, how do we consistently rely on this on, on the policy side? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been talking about the durability of carbon storage, right, that most of this episode, I think, and, and there's another question around the durability of policy, right, and, and I think political economists spend a lot of time thinking about that, and, and it looks a bit different in every governmental system, but I also think there's a question of, you know, if we establish provisions, for example, in our tax code for deployment incentives, or we offer, or we give additional budget to DOE to, to provide grants for some of these technologies, or cost share, or low interest loans, there's only such a degree to which, you know, an anti-climate action administration could abuse those provisions, right? If, if there's existing funding to support those technologies, I am both confident and optimistic that they would be used appropriately. This is a good note to, to wrap up on, but I think one of the most important aspects that I've seen emerging, particularly in carbon dioxide removal policy, that has been bipartisan is, is a focus on labor and environmental justice. We've seen you know, a lot of considerations, both from Congress and the administration to encourage safe and high paying jobs, right, good labor standards for the deployment of these technologies. We've also seen a focus on in a commitment to community buy in, right, you know, these facilities will be substantial. And the aspect of geologic storage, I think, is very, very foreign and potentially, uh, you know, concerning for the average citizen. And so, really getting community buy-in, doing good public engagement for all these projects is going to be crucial. And I, and I think that now policymakers are starting to see that aspect to carbon dioxide removal and are taking it a lot more seriously. Yeah. Well, Rory, I thank you for the time and uh, all the work you're doing. It's super valuable. And the team at Carbon 180, thanks, for, thanks to Dana for putting us in touch and making this happen. And yeah, really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate everything you're doing. Great. Thank you so much for having me on, James. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope it was informative. If you haven't already, please follow us on social at Experience Animalia and join our newsletter where we share three stories every week you can read in 10 minutes. And check out carbon180.org as well and support their great work. The link is in the show notes. As always, thank you for supporting Animalia and being a part of protecting this planet and all the incredible life that calls it home.